So I, I used to shuck oysters at Chelsea Market um, on the King's Road, and we do like two, three thousand a day there. And half, 50% of the people will be like, where are these from? Are they, are they French? And then it'll be like, no, they're from 50 miles east of here. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Is the oyster not the quintessential seafood? Defining of its origin, luxurious, sweet, salty, rich and delicious. Exotic yet simple, the oyster reflects the mood of its environment on any given day, with flavour and condition literally subject to the weather, water and even the time of day. The oyster is one stable creature in an otherwise completely changing estuary environment. It's almost impossible to draw precise comparisons between oysters, even of the same species, raised in one estuary to those raised in another. When it comes to exploring oysters, there are interesting parallels drawn to the world of wine. And like the specialists in the world of wine, the negotiant or the sommelier, there are too a small but growing group of oyster experts who've spent years and in some cases a lifetime exploring, learning and defining the extraordinary world of oysters. Bobby Groves is one such authority. He's an acclaimed oysterman, author and enthusiast. He's worked across the world as an oyster curator and shucker for various restaurants, markets and oyster bars, shucking thousands of oysters a day. These days, as the head of the oysters at London restaurant group Chiltern Firehouse, he is one of the world's leading authorities on this amazing bivalve. So my name is Bobby Groves. I'm an oyster man from Essex, England, and I'm based in London, where I um, shuck oysters at a restaurant called Chiltern Firehouse. And I'm the author of a book called Oyster Isles, A Journey to England and Ireland's Oysters. So I grew up 48 miles east of London um, on the Essex coast in a town called Maldon, uh, M-A-L-D-O-N. It's famous for sea salt um, and it's also famous for a, a rich oyster heritage. So um, the neighbouring farm to ours uh, was an oyster farm and um, when you grow up in the rural sort of uh, east coast you, you end up doing lots of different jobs from um, grain carting or plowing fields or working on the vineyards and, and the oyster industry and the one that I did the most of because they were family friends was working at a place called Malden Oysters which actually is quite a big oyster farm and it ships all over the world so um, my first job was down on the prom down on the quayside uh, in a place called um, the Hythe, which is an old old English word for um, harbour. Um, and I was running the uh, oyster shack down there and selling cockles, whelks, oysters, um, jelly deals, um, you know, some, some wet fish, and, and then crab and lobster in season. So I was about 16 when I was running that shack for them and then moved on to work in the... Um, at the oyster farm, so I'd be an oyster boy down on the beach, and they have like a rack and bag um, aquaculture method down there, and then into the purification plant, and then delivering up into London, and that's pretty much where it all started. So it's it's about seventeen years in the oyster industry now. So that's when I was a kid in, in my teenage years, because uh, Malden is about. 50 miles east, 48 miles as the crow flies. You've got, uh, it's in that strategic position, um, like the famous place um, Whitstable, which is on the southern side of um, the River Thames. We're on the north side. 
So this whole area, the southeast of England, is is uniquely located to get good access uh, using the rivers and historically the railway and 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 um, and cart grain, uh, you know, carting stuff along the roads and boating out towards France as well. So it's a, it's a huge concentration of oysters down there because it's brilliantly located for the continent and for the capital. So my job really was. Um, quite traditional in a sense, where I was um, driving pallet loads of oysters in boxes of 50, or if I was going to the airport and shipping them out to Asia in, in huge boxes of 200. And I'd drive up the um, the A13 was the road uh, for about half an hour into a huge market called Billingsgate Fish Market which is the historic London fish market, drop off loads of stuff there. And because I was there during daytime and it's a nighttime market, I had no help getting the pallets off um, with the pump trucks or, or any of the machines. So I had to physically unload these pallets onto new pallets um, by hand. Once I'd done the market, I would then drive into the city and I'd do about 30-odd restaurants and that's going into the belly of the beast of huge banks in Canary Wharf with all their private kitchens. It would be going into the back of Bentley's restaurant, um, Jay Sheiky, all of these famous uh, oyster houses in, in London. And I'll pop out the other end um, so I'm wiggling through the whole city um, and then I pop out the other end hoping that I hadn't screwed up any order and I'd have to go back and then I'd get out to um, Heathrow and I'd drop off a pallet load there for, for shipping across you know, to Hong Kong or to um, Runji's Market uh, in Europe and then drive back so it was, a, it was a huge day not all the days were like that obviously and, and Christmas was like 10 times worse than that <laughs> but um but uh, yeah, that's that's what a uh, oyster on the east coast of England, oyster fishery on the east coast of England, does uh, when it's that close to London. You really make um, a lot of drops in London. It's fantastic. You do it by hand as well. I think now they do it Tuesday and Friday. I, I used to clock in at eight, pack all the oysters with the oyster boys from the purification tanks into boxes, load the van. They'd stop and have a cigarette break, and then I'd bloody go and do the whole city of London. So I, I was the the lackey that had to go and do it all. Having learned the oyster farming craft, Bobby's enthusiasm to inspire and motivate people to enter the wonderful world of oyster appreciation found him at the famous Borough Market, shucking oysters and telling stories about the provenance, history and in the enjoyment of oysters. So the bit between uh, the oyster fishery, um, well, sorry, I need to differentiate between fishery and farm. I also did a bit of work for West Mersey um, a family on West Mersey, which is an island at the end of the River Blackwater, where where my farm was based, um, and they are eighth generation oyster fishers, um, and they are um, they're the fishery, and I was on the farm. So there's aquaculture at Malden, and there was fishing and wild hand picking at West Mersey. So um, yeah, I did a bit of work for them. They have a market stall in Borough Market, which is um, right by London Bridge. Uh, station um and that's our famous sort of uh, ready to eat market if you like so billingsgate's the wholesale and then borough is the big sort of touristy one and they've got a, a wonderful um they've got a wonderful market there uh, a wonderful stall there where they're doing like three thousand oysters a day and, and clams and stuff so i sort of gravitated between um i went from malden to helping these guys out out at the stand and crucially started my own sort of events business, which was just uh, just named after me, Bobby's Oysters, which was just shucking in London. 
Um, and then that put me in the city and in amongst it all, and I moved up from Essex to London. I think um, when you're in the in a position or in an industry long enough, you soon start to work out where your strengths are or what you enjoy doing the most. And I found when I was delivering the oysters, I really loved that engagement between the chefs and 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 uh, me doing the delivery or speaking to the clients and you know if you were going in the front door which is the case with bentley's oyster restaurant in piccadilly um you'd end up speaking to guests and and i really loved that interaction so uh i, I found out then that i was more client facing than i thought i was so i started to do more the service end um and i, I yeah i think that's a huge part of it isn't it i mean that's what all um that's what we celebrate, isn't it? The actual uh, engagement between farmer and uh, and um, consumer, and it's it's just really interesting. You never know where it's going to go. So that that's essentially how that happened. And then, a couple of years later, um, crucially, there's uh, while well, I was down at the market, I found out that uh, a restaurant in Marlebone, so in West London, uptown that was uh, looking for um, an oyster. They wanted to do an oyster cart, um, like a concept, like an old Victorian Costa-monger-style cart. Uh, and I just threw my hat in the ring after doing, I think it was the Saturday before Christmas, I did about 3,000 oysters down at the market. Um, and I threw my hat in the ring, said, yeah, I can do this for you. And we had a quick meeting with the chef. The chef at the time was a guy called Nuno Mendes, and, uh, and the head chef was Patrick Powell. And we sat down. I didn't take a CV in or anything. I just sort of sat down on the counter and just showed them a picture of the oyster farm and said, this is what I do and this is where I come from. And they, they gave me the gig. And now, eight years later, uh, we are, um, yeah, here we are. So it was turned from a quick pop-up to now a serious oyster cart that does good numbers and is quite well respected. Um, so that's the we went from Borough Market and then and then to o- opening the raw bar at um, Chilton Firehouse in uh, in Marylebone. A British food critic famously said of the fashionable London restaurant Chilton Firehouse that the place seems to be almost permanently accessorised by Kate Moss. It's no surprise then that an enthusiastic, passionate oysterman like Bobby should put his roots and oyster knife down there. So we do, we're open every single day of the year um, and we um, pretty much do a service from, uh, so like a 12-hour service from 11 to 11 or 11 till close, it can drag on a bit at the end. Um, we have one guy standing out there, me, 90% of the time, um, and we shuck um, to order uh, oysters, a variety of oysters. I think I've got 20 on the system that I can pull from, but at any one time, it's normally about three or four, depending on what's available seasonally. Um, we do crudo clams as well, the cherry stone clam or hard shell clam. Um, and we do uh, crudo scallop and we do caviar. So it, it's, it's a sort of um, three foot by four foot oyster cart that looks like a Victorian sort of um, traditional Costa Monger cart, stainless steel worktop, um, and then a lovely big trough, a well for all the oysters to to sit in. And then um, we dress it up like a sort of Parisian oyster display, and then we just shuck to order. So at any one time, you can you could have like one ticket come through if it's eleven a.m. on a Sunday because everyone wants to eat pancakes, not oysters. But then by by the time it's two o'clock in the afternoon. 
you're knee deep in about four, four to ten tickets of which that could be a, a you know um a la minute um slicing scallop to shucking 24 rock oysters or popping open a caviar that you've got to run into the kitchen and plate up with the bellinis from the chefs it's it can be like t- um it's, you know, the notch can be turned up to 10 or it can be like quite measured um so it's ebbs, ebbs and flows but we do about 150, 160,000 oysters off it a year, um, which if you're looking at somewhere like Borough Market, you know, they're doing 3,000 a day. That's, you know, a th- not as much as what they're doing at all. But considering we're, um, we've got a, a, a brasserie menu and, and a hotel and, and uh, snacks for the hotel lobby, there's, there's lots of different things that are on offer there. But the oyster cart is a dedicated oyster cart. And I get to sort of apply my aquaculture uh, knowledge to what's what the oyster meats are like throughout the year and stuff to make sure we've got the best stuff on there at all all times. One of the exciting aspects of running a specialty oyster program is the opportunity to curate an exciting range of species from different regions and growers by season. So um, famously we've got the what we call the native oyster, um, the Latin Austria edulis, um, the European flat oyster available September through to April. Um, stocks are quite low uh, this year in the last couple of years and in general you know the wild beds have been obliterated because of overfishing around the turn of the century um, the uh, but we've got this gorgeous native oyster that when it's available and you know there's enough stock to harvest some uh, and the price is more expensive to the to the buyer to me um, we've got this fantastic uh, flat oyster so it's, it's uh, if if no one's seen it before, uh, to describe it, it would be like a little disc, like a flat oyster, not deep like your rock oysters. It's a flat disc, um, sort of brown shell in appearance, quite flaky shell, and the meat is um, sort of a sort of tan brown colour, uh, and it generally, obviously, it depends on where it comes from, but generally, you've got a much more sort of gamey, mineral, strong, earthy. Uh, flavor compared to a rock oyster or a gigas oyster um the only way to describe it if no one's ever tasted one is if you had two if you had a rock oyster and a native oyster next to each other the rock oyster would be chicken and the native oyster would be um, rabbit or pheasant or something like that that that's how you would that's how you'd compare the meats so it's highly prized and uh, very precious and if there's not enough in the river then we just leave it but um we have that gorgeous native oyster. Uh, the other species that we have um, a lot of here is the, um, we call it a rock oyster, but it's not a Sydney rock. It's a, it's a, it's a Pacific um, rock oyster, um, Chrysostria gigas. Um, and that's the one that we brought over, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Um, and really it sort of took off in the 1960s when hatchery technology took hold um so really so everyone started messing around with um rock oysters because the government wanted to prop up the oyster industry in the 60s in the uk and europe so we had rock oysters on mass and they tested them uh, tested them in labs and tested them in the wild and and it was a viable commercial product and uh, really in the 1980s and 90s is when it sort of became more and more available and now it's the most popular oyster here. I think globally it's something like 80 or 90% of oysters consumed is actually the gigas species. 
So we have those two species, and within those species, I mean, there's a, a, a number of farms and fisheries that I can pull from. The renaissance of appreciation for oysters worldwide has spurned an explosion in the number of farmers who are exploring ways to manage their crops by estuary, species and season, and are sending them to market, often branded with a clear definition of how the unique miroir from which they have come can influence the flavour and texture and ultimately the enjoyment of the oyster. We in the UK, are, there's more and more projects springing up around the coasts um, with oyster restoration. That's a big thing. Uh, there are more farms happening as well. There's sort of new farms, a bit like in the States where they hand out leases, like 10-acre leases in... Um, in Long Island Sound in New York. Like you, you get a lot more new farms and new brands within that. So there's the old 2,000-year-old Colchester and Whitstable sort of Roman thing going on. But then you've got brand new producers just sort of um, starting up, buying some seed, and then within one and a half, two years, they've got a product and a brand. So I, I'm really enjoying the sort of branding thing. Like I think it's... I. I I'd probably attribute it to America and their thriving oyster industry. But that whole appellation thing where you've got brand new names and people having fun with it. And within those, within within the brand and the, and the oyster farm, they actually have brands and different sort of ways of marketing them. So um, if there's a different sized oyster, they'll call it a different thing. But it's actually the same oyster from the same farm. And one's 120 grams and one's 80 grams. But it, it gives a restaurant or a consumer an option and and it's a nice nice thing so i really like that it's really progressive and moving forward um the oyster restoration thing i'm trying to do it in london at the moment by sending our shells back to the east coast and letting them sit on the on the beach side and um bleach in the sun for a couple of months uh, under the uv so that they're purified if you like before they get dumped back in the the river to help baby oysters settle on them um so oyster restoration is a big thing uh it's very difficult the logistics to get a, a transport company to take loads of smelly oysters from a restaurant back to back to a beach but we will get there but it's happening elsewhere um glenn Morangi, the whiskey company is working in the Dornoch firth in scotland just on the west coast a couple of um a uh, couple of f- f- uh, fourths up, uh, yeah, just above the fourth. Uh, they're, they're working and they've got the backing and the finances to work with um, Harriet Watts University in Edinburgh to properly repopulate the um, the lock there. And that's that's happening all over, really. You know, Galway's doing it. Um, it's on the south coast of England. They're doing it and they're promoting eel grass re- growing back again and, and banning dredging in certain areas and... I think that's really good and really progressive. Oyster farming is a demanding, often lonely, with no downtime kind of job. The farmer spends long hours in all types of weather, tending his crop to ensure it's in the best condition before it goes to market. The reward for an oysterman like Bobby is the opportunity for him to explain directly to his customers how, where and when the oysters came from, despite what he went through to get them there. I think going back to the oyster farm days, uh, Christmas at the oyster farm, that's a fantastic experience. It's so visceral and such hard work. It's like, um, I think one of my one of my standout 
experiences was actually like when it was minus two and we were we from the oyster between the oyster farm and the purification tanks there's a big holding tank that's outside at Malden Oysters and you've got like you know 5,000 oysters in there at one time in, in orange aquaculture boxes of 200 and um I think just I just remember leaning into that, uh, holding onto the side, hoping that I wasn't going to fall in, and I had all, all of the gear on, all of the aquaculture sort of guy cotton oilskins on, and boots and gloves and every possible bit of PPE and protective wear that I could have. But my I lost the use of my hands because it was so cold, and my hand was going repeatedly into this sort of freezing cold water and. Well, the only fingers that would work were my thumb and my index finger. So I remember doing a whole day lifting out huge sort of like 40 kilo, um, 50 kilo uh, orange boxes of oysters with with just two digits and then um, putting them into the um, purification tanks and just doing it over and over again. I mean, that's one thing. And then we, I remember at the end of the shift sort of, secretly hating my colleagues because i was the young lackey that was doing all of that and then we just all skated along the um skated along the tarmac which was just covered in ice and then just skated along to the pub and i remember that being quite a nice experience in hindsight it it reminds me of that sort of bob cratchit from uh, muppets christmas carol sort of pack pack packing up for christmas and like doing just sort of that reminds me of um i always remember that and then in borough market um uh, we would have a lot of Taiwanese and Chinese, um, Korean and Japanese tourists because um, uh, Richard Howard's Oysters used to have um, uh, a Taiwanese employee who, who used to shout about it a lot and then got the word out to the other countries that I mentioned. And whenever any of those people from the, those countries would visit, they would always pull up uh, by the coach load and they would order massive oysters and so in the uk we go for like a 90 gram 100 gram oyster which is you know sort of average market size oyster and then uh what what i learned in my market days is that in um that part of asia oysters is is, is sort of bread and butter out there isn't it it's much more part of cooking and, and part of sauce making and people loved the huge oysters so every time we saw a coach turn up we knew that we had to get like the orders would be big. It'd be like eighteen large, so you'd be shucking eighteen times one hundred and fifty gram oysters with this knife, trying to prise open this gnarly little um, shell, and you'd you, immediately you'd be sent down, and you'd be in the weeds immediately because you'd have a huge queue, and 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 the notch went from zero to ten in like two seconds. So that's another like that's, they're, they're, I mean, and they're not the sort of glitzy experiences that you probably want to hear about but that's um that is definitely that's definitely part of the job and, and and just to talk briefly about my other work is that i go to uh the restaurant i work with um they have two other rest uh, hotels in, in america one in hollywood and one in um the shelter island which is at the end of long island just north of the hamptons so i'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to go to those places and, and we've built raw bars in hollywood and we've built one we're building one in new new york state at the moment so i guess my true like the experiences i i treasure the most are the ones where i'm standing in hollywood at an oyster cart and um you know working with 
products that I would never dream of working with. You know, a local Carlsbad oyster farm or something from like the north of Canada where it's like um, really cold waters, tiny little rock oysters or something from the Puget Sound near Seattle. That's the true gift or like a massive scallop. They always have huge sea scallops over there, which are like twice as big as the uh, king scallop that we have here in the UK. So if I'm slicing a nice crudo scallop there, it's just... It's, it, it feels like a computer game, or like a, like a, or like a champ, Champions League football match where you're playing the game in a different stadium. It's like, it's it's um, it feels like that. And then in in New York, it's just unbelievable because Long Island Sound is just must be about four hundred producers in that area alone. And then the oyster book that I did, I, I went to about forty oyster farms in the UK and Ireland. Bobby's knowledge of all things oysters has been captured in the definitive book about the oysters of England and Ireland. Entitled Oyster Isles, it's an oyster travelogue, a one-of-a-kind piece that shines a spotlight on the extraordinary and the everyday of the industry. It's the stuff that oyster bucket lists are made of for any oyster enthusiast. So Essex is famous for this sort of like wide boy Range Rover gangster thing. And every time I say an oyster is from Essex, wherever I am, if I was on the market stall, if I'm at the cart in London or wherever, someone might make a joke saying, oh, do these oysters have fake tan? And and I, I, I literally had this so much and I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God. So I, I used to shuck oysters at Chelsea Market. Um, on the King's Road and we do like two, three thousand a day there and half, 50% of the people will be like where are these from? Are they, are, are they French? And then you'll be like no, they're from 50 miles east of here and then you talk about the, the Roman heritage and everything like that and I sort of got tired of doing it my whole life and then when I was in London shucking, I'd have a lot more interaction with international guests so the three things that made me do the book one is i was fed up of justifying where i'm from because it's such a rich history um and the sort of the stereotypical um picture of the essex boy is just a part of the story it's a brilliant part of the story but it's just a part of the story secondly people always ask for french oysters and i think france is like the fourth biggest producer in the world or something but crucially when britain overfished their oysters at the turn of the century uh, the french government whoever was in power at the time all the napoleons said um we might need to conserve our oysters as a source of food for the villages and to get them into the cities so there was always some element of conservation or rationing when it came to oyster farms in france which is a, has a lot to do with why they're so famous for it because London, New York, and Paris in in um, the Western world were huge oyster powerhouses in the 1890s and 1880s. Uh, London then slipped away when we overfished everything at the onset of train travel and industrialization. And you know, we, we then became not famous for oysters. And it's really annoying because where I come from, there's Roman heritage. So uh, Essex boy thing, the French thing, and then... Um, Lastly, I was just like, I saw it happen across the board. Like, I, th- I remember one guy from Dubai flying in and be like, where are these oysters from? And I'd be like, oh, these are from England. And it's like, are they not polluted? And it, I mean, it, even though it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek comment and, and only one person made that comment, I've had others a bit like it. And I was like, bloody hell, like, we've got grade-A waters around, you know, we're surrounded by like 18,000 kilometers of coastline. Like, we're, we're surely we've got good oysters. Um so I was on a bit of a mission to change that narrative. Uh, and crucially, I don't think anyone had 
got on the back of a Triumph Bonneville and gone round 5,000 miles on their days off and gone and done the actual visits. With a keen sense of pride for the range of oysters across the UK, Bobby's approach to collecting the stories from the farms, the farmers and the oysters themselves was to jump on a motorbike, a classic English motorbike at that, to explore the world of oysters in the British Isles. I reached out to Triumph and said, I've just learned you this book deal. Uh, are you interested in letting me ride a bike so I can, uh, A, I wanted to do it on a bike because I thought it'd be a nice um, affordable way to do it and easy access down to the beaches and stuff because I know how inaccessible oyster farms can be. Um, and I phoned up Triumph and they ummed and ahed a little bit and then said, can you tell us more about the book? And I said, I'm basically going to go and see loads of oyster farms and fisheries and it's never been done before. Um, I think Triumph would work quite well because... I'm, I'm British, it's a British uh, and Irish project and Triumph are quintessentially British. I think they're built in um, Leicestershire, aren't they? So it's. So I, I asked them and they said, yeah, have a T120. So Triumph Bonneville T120. Um, and then it was two-tone green and white and uh, I parked it in London and then left from London, started in my hometown in Malden. And then I went all around the UK, anti-clockwise. So uh, did the east coast north of the Thames, round East Anglia, all the way up to Lindisfarne, uh, just north of Newcastle, into Scotland and up to uh, across to the Hebrides, with a, you have to get a little boat um, to go across the water body to see all the, the peaty islands, like Isla, where the whiskey comes from. They've got really peaty oysters there. Um, down, down to the Cumbria and the Lake District, uh, then I went down to Wales uh, and I crossed into Ireland, went clockwise from County Wexford all the way around to County Louth through Northern Ireland, back into Scotland and then um, went down to the south coast and then did Cornwall, which is beautiful um, and famous for native oysters, the Fowl Estuary, where you can only fish for oysters under manpower sail and or no no motorboats allowed there did the whole south coast popped over to the island of jersey and guernsey uh, and finished in whitstable which is the world famous royal whitstable native oyster fishery and it so i did kent which is that county last not because essex and kent hate each other so i did essex first and kent last but i did it because it was i wanted to start where i was born and where i was from just so it works with the narrative and finish with the most famous place. So that's how that all worked. And it was bloody brilliant. Oyster appreciation is beautifully subjective and often fluid and mercurial. The vast array of flavors and textures of oysters from different regions in different seasons is a constantly changing landscape, which is what makes them so culinarily exciting. Trying to nominate one single specific oyster as a favorite can for a seasoned oysterman, be an almost impossible task. Yeah, there's uh, there's one standout oyster at the moment that's just consistently good, um, consistently good with the meat content and um, quality, and lasts a long time. So it's from Carlingford in Ireland, it's from Carlingford Lock. Um, that's on the east coast of Ireland, just 50 miles north of Dublin, and it's the um, the, the border runs through the middle of. Um, of the lock from Northern Ireland to Republic. So on the Republic side, you've got Carlingford oysters and, and within their farm, they're a big farm. They, they do rock oysters. Uh, they have um, a percentage of their farm, which is given over to, um, 
the actually it's an Australian technique the um, the swinging basket which tumbles the um, tumbles the oyster and they they named it they named their premium oyster or their especial oyster after themselves so the farmers are Mary and Key and Louis Pfizer and um, their premium oyster is just uh, knocks it out of the ballpark at the moment you can you can serve it all year round and it's absolutely fantastic and because it's grown in these swinging seeper baskets um, they they get this really deep shell and the the meat fills the shell so you've always got a shell packed full of meat so that the, the premium Carlingford oyster has to be my top oyster at the moment um, but I'm always loyal to my east coast uh, guys like Brancaster, Butley Creek, um, West Mersey, Colchester, and Malden. These guys, uh, you've you've got a sort of an estuary, sort of brackish, um, vegetal sort of finish to them because it's a lot of sort of sweeping marshland out there. Whereas the Carlingford oyster is right out in the Irish Sea, getting battered by the waves. Bobby Groves is at the vanguard of the exciting movement, which is the oyster professional constantly challenging farmers to produce better quality whilst concurrently encouraging consumers to explore the world of oysters. His enthusiasm, commitment and outright love of his work is a true inspiration for oyster lovers across the world. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.